Cole survived the blast, but his arms and legs were shattered. The bomb went off just after 11.30 in the morning, almost, it seemed, to attract as much attention as possible. Almost, some say, to serve notice to the city of Phoenix. Don Bowles was one hell of a reporter, good enough anyway to have made a lot of enemies. As we begin to roll up our sleeves in this investigation, it's time to look at the players of this ugly chapter in Arizona history. We must look at several key individuals, both according to the state's theory of events, as well as several characters we feel need a much closer look. With the premise of the state-sponsored theory, it appears that Don Bowles' murder may have been misconstrued from the start. Max Dunlap, John Adamson, and James Robeson were all charged with being involved in the blast. But was it just a cover-up for the real players? The Don Bowles case, an unfortunate incident. I know uh, everybody in your media, newspaper and TV men, must get a little twinge when they turn on their car if they're working in any sensitive areas. You work in sensitive areas. When is some uh, local hood going to say, I've had enough of Morley Safer and his land fraud investigations on national TV? Let's start with the Kemper-Marley theory. Now remember, Kemper-Marley was a local liquor magnate who lost his seat on the state racing commission due to a prior story Bowles wrote. So, the assumption was he had an axe to grind. This theory includes the only men prosecuted for the murder of Don Bowles. The state charged Max Dunlap with first-degree murder for ordering the hit on Bowles. But who was Mr. Dunlap? And what was his connection to the murder of a famed journalist? Before his arrest, Dunlap was a well-known figure in town. He was a family man, married to Barbara Dunlap and father to their seven children. Dunlap was a contractor in the land development business. He started his own company called M.A. Dunlap Construction and grew his company with the help of a close friend and mentor, Kemper Marley. Prior to the Bulls murder, it would have been difficult to find anyone in the Phoenix area with a negative thing to say about Max. However, he was also definitely in the orbit of both John Adamson and Neil Roberts a high school classmate and friend. Max Witter, North, North High School in Phoenix. His classmates included Brad Funk and Neil Roberts. Yes. Uh, you knew these guys from high school. Uh, Max and Neil remained close. Uh, Max did not remain close with Brad, but Brad and Neil remained close. Uh, so all these guys were bouncing around each other a lot. Max made a living as a uh, a guy who prepared land for construction projects. And he was a land worker. And he was making a pretty good living, and he had someplace along the way met Kemper Marley and become kind of a protege of Kemper's. Kemper liked him, and, and Max liked Kemper, and Kemper often loaned Max money to front, you know, get paid back later for projects he was working on. And, and there was a close, almost father-son relationship between these two guys. Kemper was considerably older, but these guys liked each other. See, now Max Dunlap's conviction was based on two things. On the testimony of John Adamson, which was the biggest role, and a money drop 
to Adamson's lawyer's office to help with his defense fund. Much more on that later. Kemper Marley, Dunlap's motivation for hiring Adamson, was a multi-millionaire Arizona rancher and liquor wholesaler. Saying he was a business titan in Arizona wouldn't do it justice. Kemper Marley was big time. While he was implicated in the killing, no charges would ever be filed against him. Kemper was worth around $400 million in 1976 money. He was rich enough that, you know, this, none, of them, none of this was a big... Making money was what he was all about. If he had wanted Bowles killed for some damn reason, he could have bought the paper and fired him. <laughs> or he could have hired the best hitman in the world, and like right. Jimmy Hoffa, we never would have found Don Bowles again. He never would have reached out to a bunch of North Central Avenue drunks to carry it out. <laughs> and he wasn't a back shooter. Now, Kemper was a nasty son of a bitch. I hated him. I knew him. But he was the kind of guy who might break a bottle over your head in a bar fight, but he wouldn't shoot you in the back. There was nothing about Kemper that said, you know, this was him. And Bowles was not particularly focused on Kemper, contrary to rumors in the investigating the liquor industry. He wasn't a major target. Phoenix was full of many, many, many bad guys at that time. And most of them had nothing to do with, with killing Don Bowles. Few of them did, but most of them didn't. Uh, and that's an important distinction to make. Kemper Miley being one of the people I would consider a bad guy, but he's one of the bad guys who, as far as I can tell, you know, had nothing to do with it. So almost from the get-go, the state was pursuing uh, Dunlap and, and Marley. Early on, Adamson carelessly had mentioned somebody named Little Jimmy involved. Uh, Jim Robeson became added to the list of suspects fairly quickly, even though he was not the right Jimmy. Uh, but he became the right Jimmy in the minds of uh, the prosecutors. And they put all of their energy in that respect on Robeson as well. Those men were the state's case plain and simple. And early on, once the state had latched on to Neil Roberts' theory, any evidence pointing anywhere else was either ignored or was disposed of. Now, Neil Roberts, the Phoenix attorney, had a reputation for being smooth and charming. He was one of the top civil lawyers in town. However, it's unclear how he got that reputation because he was rarely seen in the local courts. He was a fixer with powerful connections that included, yet again, Senator Barry Goldwater. Neil Roberts was kind of like the hub on a, on a wagon wheel with a lot of spokes on different illegal things he was involved in, that each, each leading to a prominent person in town. And, and had Neil gone down for anything, Neil did not really practice law in the conventional sense. He bribed people, he organized things. He was not really a trial lawyer. And he had a limited list of clients and they paid him handsomely and he kept them out of trouble. And he was a drunk, began drinking by noon and was blitzed by evening. A lot of people in town knew Neil Roberts. I mean, all the all the attorneys in town knew Neil Roberts. Yeah. He was one of the players. Yeah. He was this good-looking, swaggery, alcoholic, you know, playboy in town, you know? And so were half of the other defense attorneys in town. So they all kind of had this little club. Neil Roberts was known by all the key players in the murder, including Max Dunlap and John Adamson. Adamson spent a lot of time in Roberts' law office and Roberts even stated to police that Adamson was with him 15 minutes before the explosion, proving that he couldn't have done it. Roberts claimed to remember this occurrence so vividly 
because his secretary, Eileen Roberts, had contacted the operator to check about the time since her watch had stopped. The time was 11.18. Roberts explained that he and Hank Landry, get this, a one-legged convict and professional gambler, had traveled to the airport to send a greyhound to a distant track. Adamson had gone his own way, seemingly unconcerned about time. Speaking of Landry, shortly after the bombing, he was interviewed by Phoenix PD and told them of a conversation he'd had with Roberts and Adamson just days before the incident. Landry passed a polygraph test related to the statement given to police and was even given immunity if he was ever called to testify. A few days before the Embles bombing occurred on uh, Memorial Day weekend of 1976, late May, uh, Neil had a party. Uh, he didn't need much of an excuse to have a party at his place, but he had a party. Uh, he had a, a pool between his law office and his condo, and, and uh, it was a hangout place for pretty girls in bathing suits, and booze and drugs and you know, fun times. And so he had a party, and among other people there, Hank Landry and other friends of his were there. And the upcoming Bulls bombing came up as a topic of conversation, because it apparently was not exactly a secret that it was in the works. And and Landry reportedly asked Neil, how come you don't get a gun and shoot the guy? It's a lot easier. I'm paraphrasing, of course. And that's when Neil Roberts made that much-quoted statement about the guy that wants this done wants it done loud and clear. Uh, and uh, that's why it's essentially a bomb. But Neil was talking before the bombing in ways that clearly made him a, a principal in the plot, not an accessory after the fact for flying Neil, for flying John Adamson to Havasu. But, and Neil was clearly involved in a major sort of way. We're going to dive deep into Neil Roberts and the evidence against him in future episodes. And maybe, like me, you'll wonder how the hell this man was given immunity instead of an indictment on murder charges. Another important figure, maybe most important, is Bradley Funk. As we stated in prior episodes, the Funk family were the local partners to Emprise in the state's racetrack monopoly. Brad Funk was also a hothead and a drunk. The animus between Brad Funk and Don Bowles began because of the stories he wrote on the racetracks. Things went much deeper between the two men, however. Not only did Bowles write stories exposing the racetracks, but he also was a little too friendly with Bradley Funk's ex-wife, Betty Funk Richardson. She had become one of Bowles' main sources on the Funk family. And with Betty in the middle of a nasty child support lawsuit against Brad Funk, Bowles would often attend the hearings to support her. It had been compounded by the fact that when, when Brad Funk got divorced from Betty Funk, uh, she accused her husband, I believe righteously, with having molested their 12-year-old daughter, Sydney, which was part of the divorce filing motivation. And Don was very upset by that uh, in terms of Mr. Funk's behavior. Mm -hmm. And... and um, became a champion of hers through the divorce process. I think partly to also woo her as a confidential source, which which she did. She became his confidential source number three uh, on the tracks of the mob. 
But Don was really very, very taken by her situation, and and it cemented his feelings about the, the Funks being dirty at that time. According to Betty Richardson, Funk had also threatened Don Bowles' life in the days leading up to the bombing. According to Betty, Betty Richardson, Bradley's ex-wife, he did. Uh, I think the day before Don was killed, in a phone conversation with her in California, he mentioned, according to her, that Bradley had threatened him, threatened his life uh, at the Capitol while mm-hmm. they were you know, stepping out of, from the hearing on the, on the divestiture question at that time. And that was not unusual, but Bradley had threatened him more than once, and apparently Bradley threatened him again. And Don mentioned that to Betty over the phone, um, just, you know, 24 hours or less before he he was fatally uh, injured in that bombing. Immediately after the bombing, Bradley Funk disappeared from public view. Five days later, once the Phoenix PD stunningly decided he was no longer a suspect in the Bulls case, he reappeared checking himself into a California rehab facility. His roommate at the facility reported some suspicious behavior to authorities. I think when this whole thing went south, his family arranged to get him off the streets and he was picked up by these two guys and he vanishes for five days um, and is delivered under an armed guard. The guy has a weapon on his hip who takes him to a dryout sanitarium in Orange, California. And he surfaces on the, the on the same date uh, that the Funks are no longer on the suspect list, according to the Phoenix Police Department. And and he put him in a dryout sanitarium in Orange, California, with a roommate truck driver named William Wright. And he immediately begins to behave in ways that make Mr. Wright suspicious. He's making multiple daily phone calls to Phoenix to find out Don Bowles. Uh, medical status, uh, you know, getting regular updates on how Don is doing. Now he takes Wright down to the hobby shop one day soon after he's there and points out in the hobby shop the kind of remote control device that's available in the hobby shop of the sort that was used to kill Don Bowles. How did Funk know that? In general, he's behaving in ways that make Mr. Wright suspicious that Funk may be involved in this thing. Not only was Bradley involved with Adamson, but he also had a long history with Neil Roberts. They both attended Phoenix North High School and eventually established a lawyer-client relationship. While Bradley was in rehab, he told his roommate he was temporarily leaving one weekend to meet with his attorney in San Diego. His roommate eventually reported this to California law enforcement as well as to Phoenix PD Detective John Sellers. The meeting that took place in San Diego between Bradley Funk and Neil Roberts was most likely their first encounter together since the Bulls car bombing a month prior. And on the day that Don dies, uh, Funk, it was a Sunday, the the, uh, 13th of June, 76, um, Brad's uh, second wife is there with him and he's hysterical when he discovers that Don has died and he's sobering up at this point he's drying out so he's going through the combination of withdrawal symptoms and I think panic over the fact that Bulls is now dead and he might get charged in the crime and he becomes so hysterical 
that his wife asks Wright to leave the room because he's babbling and carrying on. And so Wright does. Uh, this ultimately comes to the attention of law enforcement authorities in California who interview Wright. And uh, they ultimately alert Phoenix PD who re-interviews re Wright. So there's two sets of, of interviews. And the interviews are interesting. Um, they confirm the stuff that Funk talked about, which are curious in themselves. <laughs> they also indicate that on the 4th of July weekend, Funk told Wright he was going to meet his attorney in San Diego. He has permission to leave the sanitarium for the day. As new suspects in Don Bowles' murder emerged, the police did little to learn the truth about these critical characters, or maybe they already knew them. When the state's theory about Kemper Marley, John Adamson, Max Dunlap, and James Robeson became public, police began to destroy their own investigation. I've never heard of that before. I'm going to have to ask someone how that even works. As soon as the blast occurred, authorities began withholding important information about key suspects, including suspects Bowles had mentioned at the bomb site while he was critically injured. For years, cops got away with concealing whole files and removing incriminating information on a slew of potential suspects. The most well-known file to go missing was the 851 file, as Jana Bombersbach explains. And it wasn't until much later in, in, in 1986, as we're investigating this whole case, that we discovered the Phoenix Police Department is not going in that direction at all. In fact, they are going in the opposite direction. They are destroying all any evidence that ties the Funks and Emprise to Adamson or to anything to do with this case. And we can't understand what, why in the hell are they doing that? So we outline that very clearly in this special report we did in which we show that they sabotaged the entire investigation and then tried to hide their sabotage by re, re, uh, uh, copying the, the file and renumbering the file. Well, one of the guys who's in the organized crime division knows this file well. He doesn't even need the, the, the reference card to get to it. He knows exactly this number 851, I think, right? He goes right to the file, picks up the file. He goes, this whole damn thing is, is photocopied. What happened to the original documents? And some of these things that in here, they're not here. Where are they? And the other guy says, oh, we've got them in our desk. And it's like, so eventually, thank God, one of these guys comes forward and starts admitting what's going on. If they'd have had all that information, I think there would have been a totally different way of, of, of going. You know, um, I, I, just, I just find it all so disturbing. And I can't look at the Phoenix Police Department any longer as an investigative unit which, without being very suspicious. You know, who are they framing now? Don Devereaux confirms Jana's description of the missing 851 file, but says that wasn't even the most vital file that Phoenix PD purged. Under my understanding, these files would have been kept in a warehouse or cataloged, etc. I'm confused as to why they would destroy them. And that leads us to the second file that was purged at that time, which really is the gold mine of files that was purged. That is the file that people should have paid attention to and didn't. It was not the 851 file. They also have what's called an item file in the intelligence unit. And the item file in question was item file 7686. 
76 being the year, 86 being the topic. The topic being the Bulls case. Mm-hmm. And in the aftermath of the Bulls bombing, the intelligence unit began amassing a great deal of raw intelligence information from all kinds of sources, uh, touching on the people involved or seemingly involved in, in the Bulls case. And that was the file in which the report came in about Adamson putting Funk in a cab. And that file was maintained unlike any other file in the intelligence unit. Normally, any file in the intelligence unit is logged in. It gets a number, and it's logged in by somebody. And so if that page disappears, there's a gap in the number sequence. You can tell something is missing. Yeah. Uh, in this case, the files were not being logged in. They were being kept in a, in a loose binder uh, on the desk of one of the intelligence unit detectives and just stuck in there. And this was probably being done with surreptitious purpose. It would give that unit the capacity, if they needed to, which Glenn Sparks probably wanted, its commander, the capacity to go back in and remove anything they wanted to without there being any record of what they had removed. Because mm-hmm. there would not be any sequential number system involved here. They weren't logging anything in. It was a way of acquiring a lot of information you had complete control over. Uh, and that's what they did. And in the course of the last half of 19... 19- 76, that file went from several inches thick to nothing. It all vanished. And uh, I didn't find out about that file for a while. And there were some belated efforts made to recreate some of it. Uh, we'll never know for sure what, what, what was, was in the damn file. What was disappeared, I mean, I've heard right. different reports from different detectives. That, you know, they thought they had contributed various things. And a lot of what they were talking about was mob and dog track related, um, including the Funk being put in a cab drunk by John Adamson's mm-hmm. report. Uh, but, uh, you know, that was the file people should have been paying attention to. And Anything that didn't match their first and only theory of the murder plot was buried, including any references to important players in the murder that were in police intelligence files and significant leads from informants which were disregarded or misrepresented. Led by Detective John Sellers, the Phoenix Police Department had the Marley theory, and nothing else mattered. Organized crime guys are not talking to Sellers, Sellers is not talking to him. So they're both like, it's like they're little fiefdom. Like, well, one of us is going to be a hero in solving this crime, and it's going to be me, you know? Well, this is, you know, that, you know, there's no cooperation between those two units. You know, Seller goes off, he buys the entire state theory. He, to this day, he buys the entire yeah. state theory. They never look beyond that. You know, they get, they have a theory. It is the, the blinders. If I, if there's anything that I, that is so infuriates me about the, the judicial system is that police often latch onto something very early. So it's easy and they stay there. They just stay there. They don't give a damn what information you find. They don't care what other stuff comes forward. They stay in their own little, you know, safe little corner and they miss, they miss all the time. The police did everything in their power to push the investigation in the same direction as their own conspiracy and to obliterate any ties to the case to the dog racing industry. Was it corruption, a rush to judgment, or because of the glaring spotlight of the murder, did they feel rushed to close this case as quickly as possible? We may never know. Something else that was completely ignored by the Phoenix PD at the time was a simple question. 
What was Don Bowles working on at the time of his death? The company line at the Arizona Republic was that Bowles was burned out from the investigative beat, yet just a little snooping proves that to be false. Shortly after the murder, Rosalie Bowles told police that right up to the bombing, he pursued the involvement of the Funk family into organized crime. She also stated that both her and Don were greatly concerned about the Funk investigation. And one more thing, and I'm quoting this straight from the police report. Miss Bowles explained that this particular investigation was a continuous one for her husband. And since the investigation started, they had received numerous threatening phone calls. Yet, within five days, the Funks had been cleared of any involvement in the murder. As stated in previous episodes, Don Bowles, before his death, had few allies left among his bosses at the Republic. And there was only one man who he trusted enough to involve in his ongoing investigations. That was Tom Sanford, Bowles' closest professional confidant. Sanford never believed Phoenix PD's theory of the murder. He would secretly continue the investigation after the death of Don Bowles against the wishes of his bosses at the Arizona Republic. It may have ended up costing him his life. 